we know that compensation is just one component of all the cultural factors. And if you've got all that other stuff, then pay drops way down the list. But man, if you're missing that, then compensation goes to the top. And so this book was meant not to substitute for hiring the right way, using top grading to make sure you've selected properly, that you're identifying who are the A players that match what it is that you need to deliver on. And then you just want to make sure that your comp system doesn't mess all that up. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I am talking with and learning from Vern Harnish. It is, as I have said to Vern and to other people, not an exaggeration to say that Vern Harnish changed my life. But today I want you to learn from Vern about compensation. Vern founded the Entrepreneurs' Organization in 1987. He founded Coaching Organization in 1996. He wrote Rockefeller Habits, his book about execution in 2002, which became our Bible at Rackspace as we scaled Rackspace in a book that I lent on heavily, turning around IT Lab and then growing Pier One. And it's a book that I now use, I guess, or the 2014 reprint or revision of that book called Scaling Up. Rockefeller Habits 2.0 as the base of the coaching that I do with CEOs and leadership teams around the world. Today, though, we're talking about compensation. Vern has gone and done a load of research, over 100 case studies in the book, looking at they're just, they're there not to copy, they're there for inspiration. So how do you think differently about your compensation? What might work for you? How to this isn't for the executive team. This is really for your everybody else in the organization. How do you take compensation, make it work for you so that you can attract and retain the best possible talent that you can afford so that you can build the best team that money can buy for your organization? So that's what we're going to talk to Vern about today. Fabulous conversation. As ever, I always learn a lot. I'm sure you will too. I'm Vern Harnish. I'm founded the Entrepreneurs Organization worldwide now with 16,000 members and an organization called Scaling Up. We've got about 200 plus coaching partners around the globe, including you, Don. Appreciate your uh, support of these unsung heroes and have written some books, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits, Scaling Up, uh, Greatest Business Decisions of All Time, and my latest, Scaling Up Compensation, which has been a hugely hot topic here with all the inflation 
and other pressures people have been facing. I'd love to dive into that, but do you know, I, I've got a first edition of Mastering the Rockefeller Habits. Wow. 2002. Is that right? So I, there I was at Rackspace. That became my Bible. It became our Bible as we scaled Rackspace. And in fact, that I was writing a blog post on that last week. We were talking about one-page plans. And you know that's the first time that one-page plan is in print. And it's just so funny looking back because that, you know, that was sort of, okay, we, we were in the internet business at Rackspace, but you know, most people weren't online, you know, PDFs hadn't been invented. It was still Alta Vista. It wasn't even Google, you know, and it's to take a book and read through it and go, you know, there's a couple of things in there that, you know, are sort of anecdotes of their time, but as a methodology and as a, as a way to drive execution in a business, it's really stood the test of time. Well, I appreciate that. In fact, Right as we speak, I'm rewriting that book. We're coming out with a 20th anniversary edition, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits. And it was cool. You know, Graham Weston and the boys that you worked with there were part of that MIT program that I founded back in 91. And we really did take the decade of the 90s to try to create the parenting manual. You know, there's a lot of stuff on startups. I think an incubator on every corner. I have an MBA. which is supposed to teach you how to run a large company like a Raytheon, but there wasn't anything that really taught you how to parent or grow up a company. And so it was a decade of working with Graham Wesson and about a thousand kind of crazed fast growth entrepreneurs that allowed us to really solidify those ideas that, again, you got it right. We published in 2002. So it's been 20 years ago. Just it, well, blink of an eye, you know, and then used it at Rackspace, used it at IT Lab, used it at Pier 1. And now, as you say, here I am as a coaching partner, helping hundreds of other CEOs put a plan together and then go home and execute it. In fact, I was on the phone to a lady today and she said, we've got to 3 million and I'd like to get to 10. And I just feel, I don't know what to do. Help. Yeah, for sure. Well, and as you know, um, ultimately, Graham and the guys, you guys exited that for $7 billion. So we really do know that the tools work. They help companies scale to millions or billions. Whatever it is, is your big, hairy, audacious goal. And so compensation, why did you decide to sit down and put together a a guide to compensation? Yeah, well, you know, first, for most people, it's their single largest expense. Yeah, we don't necessarily get the bang for the buck that we should be getting. And it ends up being piecemealed together as we scale. And it becomes this hodgepodge mess that ends up creating more drama than it does good in the organization. I got to tell you, there's nothing more frustrating for a business owner to say, my largest expense is creating all of these messes inside the organization. So we wanted to find a way to help everyone get it right and out of sight. And by the way, uh, some of the ideas, we share over 100 case studies in the book, though it's a quick book, only 100 pages, you can move top and bottom lines by hundreds of percent just by tweaking the existing comp plan you have today. We were with a client CEO and leadership team the other week, and we were talking about A players. And it was the end of, maybe it was the end of the second day, the CEO said, he said, can I just, just say, like, what problems have we talked about for two days? And we sort of recapped on the problems. And he went, okay, if our entire company was made up only of A players, how many of these issues would have been issues? And everybody sat and looked at each other and went, none of them. 
we wouldn't have had anything to talk about. Well, we'd have had different things to talk about, but but then then you know then people go well, how can we afford a players? And I think that's a really interesting thing, you know, because it's it shouldn't be any more expensive. In fact, I can show you some maths that's it's cheaper. Well, to your point, that's why you know, one of the first things that we highlight is you've got to get out of your mind what it is that we actually pay people. That doesn't matter. What you're trying to look at is how do you have the best dollar labor cost per gross margin dollar? Let me say it again. You just want to have a lower dollar cost, labor cost per gross margin dollar than the competition. So what does that mean? Most A players, Dom, and you know that, can produce three to one, if not 10 to one or more from a B or C player. In fact, Bill Gates said famously, the one right programmer can replace 10,000. So I'll just give you an example. I'm, this isn't Facebook or Google. This is John Summer's company, Allied Printing. They do big commercial print jobs. And I said, John, I want you to go out there into your print organization. And I want you to s- see what is the productivity difference between the A and B players. So he has a guy called a cutter. So you print the paper, then it has to be cut before you bind it. He comes on literally to one of our big global events and shares with an audience of 3,000 that, yeah, I've got a cutter who can do the work of 10, can do the work of 10. And so all you really need to do is have considerably less people paid more with a lower labor cost. So pay your A players twice as much, which is, by the way, what John does at Allied Printing. But if they're getting three to 10 times the output, your productivity and labor rates are hugely competitive out in the marketplace. So that's the game. Well, and it's interesting because McKinsey did a long study looking at executives. And it was, what is the productivity difference of CEOs when they're in flow? They said CEOs, where there's a match between the CEO and their DNA and the work that they do, which puts them in flow. They're 500% more productive. So by Monday evening, they've done the work that their colleagues or competitors will have done by Friday. And then it's like compound interest because it's like 500% better every day, every week, every month, every year. And it's that, it's the sort of two to one, five to one, 10 to one. You think about it as a, as a one-off thing. But if you compound that, it's, it's just impossible to catch an organization that builds that type of momentum. Yeah. Well, you know, let me give just another practical example. So 20 years ago, I was in Malaysia and Simon Lim was building a company, again, not Facebook or Google, but commercial cleaning. You know, he was one of the best in the region, but he he wanted to like just quit the company because one night one of his uh, managers just quit to maybe get a ring at more per hour. So he's like working the job all night. So long story short, Simon said, "Okay, here's what I'm going to do. He figured that if he could pay people on average about 25% more than market, it's about 15% more for frontline, 33% for the supervisor, the lead, then he could really attract much better talent and retain them, kind of get pay right and, and out of sight. And then he said, well, I'm going to focus on, though, is doubling our productivity measured by 50% increase by square meters cleaned in an eight-hour shift. By the way, a year later, he only got 40%. But look, if you can drive for productivity at 40% and you're only having to pay 25% more, ultimately you ended up having the highest labor rates, but the lowest labor cost per square meter. And today's the 100 ton gorilla 
in Southeast Asia in that business. By the way, focused on cleaning the buildings for Google and Facebook and Rackspace and all the technology firms as well. So less people pay more, lower total labor costs. So his profit per X is... How would we say in profit per X terms? We'd say... Per square meter. So he was really looking at profit per square meter, and then he was looking at his labor cost per square meter and his productivity per square meter, and he had the lowest labor cost per square meter, yet he had the highest, and as a result, he was able to be competitive in terms of his rates, yet pay the highest wages in the region. That way, you get the best people and you get the best customers, which he has, Google, Facebook, and all the tech firms in that region. Putting the book together, was there something that surprised you the most? Well, you know, principle number one is that you've got to be different. You know, the worst thing you could do is actually reading one of the examples in the book and just go copy it inside your own culture. And so the thing that surprised me the most were the strangest comp plans and how most people would throw up all over those ideas, but they fit perfect that company's unique culture and what it is that their customers and ultimately the company wanted to achieve. Uh, If you don't mind, let me share what I thought was one of the the best examples that kind of tied all this together. And it means we've got to go to the other end of the planet in the empire, Australia, and take you to Brisbane and to a company called Mini Movers. Again, it's not Facebook or Google. Uh, They move furniture. 450 employees, Mike Hagan, O'Hagan is the founder and CEO. And the big issue that it, you know is in that industry is you just don't want any breakage. The customers are like, you're going to move my furniture. I don't even want to see a mark on any of it. So how does the industry deal with that? Because you know you can't necessarily hire the, the smartest you know, folks. They have insurance and it costs about, uh, Dom, about 3% of revenue. So Mike said, wait a second, why am I paying that money to the insurance companies Why don't I kind of gamify every move? And so they set aside 3% of the revenue of that move. And if there is any breakage, it comes out of that fund. Whatever's left then is split among those that are on the team. And here's what's brilliant. All of a sudden, way before the customer is going to get upset, way before Mike has to get upset, the movers are policing each other. More importantly, they're they're supporting each other, cross-teaching each other, making sure that there isn't any breakage so that now what's the result? The customers are ecstatic. His word of mouth really allows him to lower his marketing costs. Number two, that extra bonus adds about 4,000 Aussie dollars a year to the total comp plan, which makes him the most competitive from a wage perspective. So he's able to get much better movers And way before he has to think about firing somebody, the other employees come in and said, look, as good as we are at hiring A players, we let the wrong person through on this one and they'll be the first to push them out. So Mike doesn't have to. So who wins? The customer wins. The employees or the culture wins and the company wins. One small change like that in the comp plan. Do you know, it, as you were talking, I was thinking that sounds the way in which tips and tip sharing in a restaurant should work, yeah. but somehow so often doesn't work. You know, you're being served by somebody who doesn't seem to like human beings and somehow found themselves in hospitality. Yes. The wrong person in the wrong job. Well, and by the way, 
I'm not going to give it the secret away, but we actually addressed that very issue and tips with some ideas from Dr. Robert Cialdini, the godfather of influence, how you can help your wait staff up their tips by 33%, which by the way, again, takes a huge wage pressure off the hospitality industry that often has to rely on those. Did you have uh, Gene from Sydney Binco? Is he in the book? He is for sure. And I don't know if you saw, but Gene, Gene just sold the company after all of these years. But yeah, the, the big lesson we learned from Gene or Gene learned that we were able to pass on is you have to be very careful, though, about those individual kind of off the cuff, short term bonuses that you might give out. So I'll tell the quick story His first quarterly theme, which is one of the things we help companies put together, was to try to drive more cash into the business. He was coming out of the last recession. He wanted to kind of fire up their growth again. And so it was a theme called Life Begins at 40. If we could get 40,000 more euros in a month for the next three months, that'd give us a half a million for the year. Well, guess what? His team achieved it. And so he thought, you know what? Maybe I ought to share the winnings. So he took 40 of the 120,000 and he threw a party, spent 10,000, which is what you ought to do. You ought to have a lot of celebrations and create memories. And then he took another 30,000 divided by the 60 employees he had at a time and passed out real quick 500 euro spot bonuses. He is never going to do that again. As we point out, the motivation effect of that short-term bonus lasts about 36 hours. And then after that, it's like now considered an entitlement. The employees are like, all right, what are we going to do next quarter, Gene? And what was supposed to really be an exciting moment turned into a demotivator, a downer inside the organization. So if you're going to pass out bonuses, we're really we're adamant in the book, except for salespeople. They're kind of a unique animal. We have a whole section on sales comp is it should be annual. You can just divide it equally among all the employees or by their percent of salary. It shouldn't be paid till sometime after the end of the year. So it doesn't get confused with their ongoing compensation. Otherwise, it becomes an entitlement. And then here was the idea we learned from John Summers. If you're already paying people fairly, then the bonus should be a bonus. And so he only pays out 50% of it, Dom, at the end of the year. The other 50% is vested over the next six years, goes into buckets of money out into the future that an employee only gets if they're still there. Now you're playing on Robert Cialdini's psychological principle, people do more to avoid a loss than to get a gain. And so employees going to think twice whether I'm going to leave and leave six years of future money on the table. And if anybody wants to try to lure them away, that signing bonus has got to be huge to counter those pots of money out into the future. And so it has become an unbelievable retention strategy for John. I like that. I like that. I was, I, the reason I was thinking about Gene is because I was thinking his strategy of hiring people in gyms to be bin men, because it's like, why train for free when you could, you know, train and be paid? And I, he, he probably did job and finish. So, of course, the faster you run, the faster you home, the better your pay per hour is. And so, you know, that, that was what sprang to mind when I was thinking about City Binko. Well, and Dom, you're right about that. That was a situation where, you know, a lot of times we view compensation as bribery. 
you know, I'm just going to have to pay somebody a lot of money to do this terrible job. And being on the back of a garbage truck, what they call a driver assistant, even a good one's only good for 36 months. And so by Gene finding a strange fishing hole to find talent meant that he didn't have to dramatically increase his costs in order to fill and maintain that position. And so that's why it's a great story around compensation. So salespeople, look, I know I'm an outlier because I think you can hire salespeople and and not pay them commission. Yeah. But what conclusions did you come to about when you looked at sales comp and the best way to do it if you're going to do it? Yeah. Well, what's interesting is, again, it's all over the place. Uh, We highlight Egon Zender, which is the world's largest private executive search firm. And, you know, in the executive search, uh, it's almost all commission based. It's almost 100 percent bonus based on the placements that you make by office. And they have 63 offices yet in that firm. There's not a penny of variable comp. And it fits the culture they want to create because they want two things. One, they don't want anyone fighting over a candidate or hoarding a candidate so their office or them can get the exclusive credit. And, you know, in these firms, the cross-referral bonuses can be a nightmare. Oh, yeah. And so instead, they know their client, the Fortune 500 global firms, just want the best candidate anyone can find anywhere on the planet. Number two, they want those their executive search person to be there forever. In fact, they pride themselves that the tenure of the executive search account manager is probably longer than any of the executives at the Global 500 company that they've served. And so the only bonus they have is company-wide, and there it's based on tenure. Your slice of that pie gets bigger each year you've stayed. And so as a result, their comp reinforces both their culture and what their clients want. Now, but on the flip side, Jack Daly and others, and the research seems to support it, he's adamant that sales ought to be 100% commission. (laughs) And we give plenty of examples as, as well. So again, it comes back to you being different. And it's got to fit your culture and what your clients want. So we've got plenty of examples that cover the entire range of commissions for salespeople. Yeah, I, I remember having a heated discussion with a guy who ran the sales team at biggest estate agency firm, real estate company in the UK. And he said, look, if, you, if you're not motivated by money, you're not a salesperson. And I said, but look, your guys are estate agents. They don't sell anything. They, and no stage agent has ever persuaded another human being to move house. That would be sales. What you do is you, you're just the least worst person when somebody wants to move house. I mean, that's, that's order taking. And I could, we, you know, <laughs> right. we, had some, uh, we had some gnarly conversations around some of that. You know, I, I thought one of the most uh, unique that we highlighted was one that I actually learned, Dom, from Michael Dell's team at Dell Computer. And they were having an issue where, you know, salespeople like the quick hit, right? They need the the sale. And so his team was making a lot of little, you know, hardware sales when they were trying to pivot into the much more complex enterprise solution where the sales cycles are months instead of days. And so what they did is they took their top salespeople and said, look, here's the deal. You're commissioned on only nine sales the entire year, nine. 
If you want one of those to be a small hardware sale to a Fortune 500, that's one. And that unique formula got their top people to say, all right, I got the new game. And that what we've got to do is land those multi, multi million dollar complex enterprise solution sales instead of the quick hardware sale. And that really helped them make that pivot. Oh, that, that's such a big culture shift inside an organization, shifting from transactional to consultative selling and, and then having a comp plan. But that's nice that uh, you only get paid on the top nine deals you do. That would, uh, that would work. Okay. And did you, you got any thoughts on how CEOs should be compensated? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We, we said there's two things that we're not going to cover in the book. One, executive comp. Okay. Because almost every book that's been written, that's all it's about. And there's 400 page books just on executive comp that require 45 page contracts, as you know. So we're going to leave that to the experts. We really wanted to write a book about how do you set up compensation for everybody else in the organization. And then number two, we don't deal with unions. And I know you guys are facing some strikes. We've got some strikes going on, threatened here in the United States. It's a, it's a whole different animal that we thought was beyond the scope of our companies, our clients, which are mainly mid-market without unions. Yeah. Do you have any personal thoughts on mid-market CEO comp? Well, a couple of things. We did, by the way, address it briefly in the book. One had to do with the ratio of what percent, how many 10, you know, 10x or 100x is the CEO's comp relative to the average comp of the frontline workers. And we've got some recommendations in there. But mainly the stories that we enjoyed sharing, you know, the CEO has to make a decision. Do they want to be rich or do they want to be king? And we highlight two companies, SaaS and Microsoft. By the way, they started about the same time. Yet with SaaS, Jim Goodnight and his partner, they didn't have any variable comp. They didn't share any equity. It was all closely held private company. One owned 60%, one owned 40%, where Microsoft did the opposite. They went public after 48 months. And what were the results? Whereas SaaS grew to about 12,000 employees, Microsoft created 12,000 millionaires and grew to 165,000. And if you looked at the relative wealth of Jim Goodnight and his partner and Bill Gates, it's hundreds of X. And so it's pretty clear that you've got to make a decision. Do you want to be closely held, family owned and not share the wealth? Or are you willing to get rich by helping others get rich? And the, the evidence is pretty clear that there's a big difference between being king or queen or getting rich. Scarcity versus abundance. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and it's about sharing the wealth, which, by the way, was another side thing that we really have been emphasizing. You know, companies used to go public early. Microsoft went early. Apple went early. Outback Steakhouse went early. And one of the companies we highlight in there, Ike, went public at $3 million in revenue. Uh, today, they have $136 million in market cap. And the reason we think it's important is the public market, Dom, is really the only great multiplier we as business owners have in order to compensate our people. See, if you're a privately held company, if you take a pound to the bottom line, that's all you got to split among the rest of the employees. 
But if you're public, depending on your price to earnings ratio, 15 or 50 or 500, you've got 15, 50 or 500 pounds that are liquid that you can provide as compensation to your employees. And so ultimately, those companies went public early, let the public give their people pay raises. The public made Microsoft's employees millionaires and Outback Steakhouse's 20-year-olds millionaires. And so I think the street has done a real disservice by holding back how long companies take to go public so they can take the internal gains themselves and not share the wealth with everybody else. So get public early. So go public early. What do you think is the right size to do that these days? Well, it used to be about 40 million in revenue, which would be 350 employees kind of thing. But now they wait till it's 10x or 100x that. And I think, and the problem is, so many of the major firms now are sharing like KKR, the evil company that was the featured as at Barbarians of the Gate is now considered gentlemen's at the gate. All of the industrial employees of the 25 industrial firms that they own have been granted stock company-wide. And one of those firms they just sold this summer for $3 billion, and the average check to the frontline truck drivers, manufacturer employees was 175000 And some of those truck drivers who've been around for a while got upwards to 800000 And so it's hard as small to mid-sized company for us to compete for talent when truck drivers are getting stock inside companies. And Harley-Davidson provided all 4,500 of their employees last year stock. So we've got to get public. We've got to get competitive if we're going to compete for A players. Similar theme in a number of things you've said there, which is, you know, whether it's stock or whether it's deferred bonuses or I was talking to uh, I was talking to a client today who who are a recent unicorn. Yeah. And, you know, one of the team there had joined on pretty good salary, doubled her salary in 18 months was about to get promoted and said that she thought maybe 25% pay rise on top of that was sensible. And it really, it's the, it's the potential, you know, she, she could get promoted another five times in that business, like yeah. if she stays around. And so lots of the things you're talking about are the things that are retention rather than acquisition. You know, that whole, you know, once we've got an A player, how do we make it almost impossible for anyone to pay them enough to leave? I, what do you have any thoughts on or some good stories on what people have done to improve the size or the quality of the hopper to pull great people in? If I go to a truck driver and I say, look, it's uh, 60,000 pounds a year and some stock, like unless they've been through a stock vesting process, they'll go, sounds hokey. Or I don't know what it is, or none of my mates have ever had stock. You know, nobody down the pub's ever got rich. So, you know, what are some of the things that about pulling people in as well as as well as retaining them once we've got them. Yeah. Well, we address that in one of the chapters. What are the three effects of financial incentives? And the first effect is the selection effect. How do we actually get people to say, hey, I choose to go to work for that company? And then obviously you have to retain. And so here's the key. Really wide pay bands. Um, and the analogy that I use are professional sports teams. I want you to think about any one of your favorite sports teams. 
does the same player in the same position on the same team make the same amount of money? No, it can vary widely. And by the way, most professional sports players, they do not aspire to become coach. Right? In fact, they make more as a player than most coaches do. And by the way, great players make terrible coaches. And so here's the quandary we're in. When employees come to you and say, all right, I want a career path. That's really code for how can I make more money? And in most organizations, the only way they can make more money is to move up in the organization. Become a manager. Yeah, but the problem is, look, small to mid-sized companies don't have enough of those positions, thank goodness. And large companies are stripping them out because we realize we don't need all of that management. And you end up in a situation where you have a great player who ends up being a terrible coach, which most great sports players do make terrible coaches. And so the key is, like for professional sports teams, if you really have your productivity KPIs nailed, people should be able to make at least twice what they started at in the same position so they don't have to give up doing what it is they love to do. So I want to go back to John Summers at Allied Printing. Again, it's not Facebook or Google. It's commercial printing. His customer service reps can literally, and they come in at a nice figure, can make up to almost six figures, double what they started at as a customer service rep. Same with the production managers running these print jobs. They can come in and they can make double what they were making, up to 150000 just managing print jobs. Now, what are some of the gates? Hey, if you're better, you get bigger accounts. You get more important jobs. Those usually come with higher gross margin total dollars. So you've got it to share with the people that are managing those accounts and making sure the customer is happy and that that print job is handled properly. And so we detail that with a European company called Telemedicine Clinic out of Barcelona, because we do know, Dom, the HR policies in Europe in general are much more draconian than the HR policies we have, for instance, in the United States. So we've got a good European company that we use. to. Oh, you mean letting people go? Yeah, letting people go and being more precise about how you set compensation. You guys have a lot more rules around that than we do. We can be loosey-goosey as we would say in our country, but not in yours. That's never been a problem. I know I meet people and they tell me that they have difficulty, but I just, I think it's a mindset thing. Well, it is. And so that's why we chose to use a European example. And what was great with telemedicine clinic is they had radiologists. And how, how do you allow a radiologist to make twice as much? And by the way, they don't want to go into radiology management. They want to be radiologists. So how do you have certain gates that they can pass through? More importantly, the non-medical roles, we had to create titles that allowed people to progress through seven, starting with amateur all the way to maestro and wizard were some of the names, so that people could get promoted seven times in the position they're in instead of the promotion being just up in the organization, which didn't exist. One of the guys I've worked with for a long time is a company called Macquarie Telecom Group down in Australia. And they, they hire people 
year two of university. So they avoid the competition at the end. You still got to finish your degree. So two years part-time whilst you work two years part-time for them. And like you say, what they do is they give people a whole series of micro pay rises and micro promotions. There's 16 things that they can do over 24 months that drives pay rise and, and a promotion. When you were doing the research for the book, did you find that uh, younger people versus more senior people are, you know, is, is it a millennial thing? Do people, you know, do younger people want more po- and older people are just it's less less of a challenge for them or? Or did it, was it? Does everybody like a promotion and a pay rise and a job title? Of course, everybody does. But the challenge with millennials is they grew up playing video games, and this is the power of a game like Candy Crush. You know that generated another billion in revenue last year. How many levels can you advance in Candy Crush? Hundreds, and it's that advancing, moving to the next level that all of us human beings love. So one of the chapters, we really dug into the gaming industry and we emphasized how important it was to take a certain set of your variable comp and gamify it. And the thing that the casinos have learned, Dom, is that we're much more excited if the outcome is a surprise, both the amount and the frequency, than if it's something that's consistent. And using a variable comp approach, we were able to help Home Shopping Network, HSM, and increase their upselling, not by 20%, but by 250%. And that's, that's an example where, without spending any more money, we were able to affect hundreds of percent improvement in KPIs within the organization. There's uh, Simon Bitliff, who, who I've had on the podcast, is... He's known as the uh, Marxist capitalist yeah. because he says, without capitalism, there is no capital to, to spread around. And what he does, I've ended up to visit him in his office, and he's got a wheel of fortune on his wall. And when you join as an employee, you get a tag, and you have to write on a piece of paper what wish you want to come true. And then when, whenever anything gets triggered, random event, oh, I don't know, we want a new deal. Somebody said thank you spin this wheel, pull it off, read the, the new starter's note, and, you know, you know, Simon's mother gets a new kitchen. Yeah. You know, and it's just sort of completely random times and um, random amounts. I guess you're saying there, the theory is that that drives people's excitement. People stay interested. It's not just a theory. It is how the whole gaming industry has been able to get folks to sit at computer screens and not want to go to the bathroom, not take a break, have no problem sitting there all night when we're begging employees to do the same and we're paying them versus them losing money. It's, it's insane. And that's why we can learn a lot from that industry. The, uh, quiet quitting is a, (laughs) uh, malingering. We used to call it, I think. Yes. Did you come across any stories or anything in the research where people could, because we talked at the beginning about a players. Yeah. Did you come off with people who could, you know, sometimes a coach can get more out of the team than the previous guy? Or, you know, it, can you pay people to change their behavior? Or do you have to swap the people out and then make sure we've got the right, the right comp to keep the right people? Yeah. And, Dom, um, you know, generally it's that ladder. You know, the, 
we outline in Scaling Up that there are really four criteria for which you ought to hire. The first one being will, the will to succeed, the will to persevere, the will to push through the pain, the will to continue to learn. The skills are changing a lot in every particular field. It is really hard to train that. It's really hard to compensate that if it's already not innate in the people that you're hiring. So we, we do want to be really clear in the book. We know that compensation is just one component of all the cultural factors. And if you've got all that other stuff, then pay drops way down the list. But man, if you're missing that, then compensation goes to the top. And so this book was meant not to substitute for hiring the right way, using top grading to make sure you've selected properly, that you're identifying who are the A players that match what it is that you need to deliver on. And then you just want to make sure that your comp system doesn't mess all that up. And that's what often happens is it runs counter to what it is that we need the people to do and the client wants delivered. What do you think about salary transparency? Well, we addressed it in the book, and there's several particularly crazy European companies that publish people's wages on their website. In general, though, we quoted Ben Horowitz. I love Ben with Andreessen Horowitz, the big venture firm, and he wrote a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And in there, he talked about this very issue, this management debt that we create, where some employee comes to us and says, look, I've got this huge offer. I'm going to quit. And you know they're critical employees. So what do you do? You go ahead and match that huge offer because you need to keep them. And you promise them not to tell anybody. Well, but, but here's what he's literally Ben says this. Here's what happens. That employee, in thinking about whether I should stay or take the outside offer, has already shared those numbers with their friend inside the company, right? And they told their friend, you got to keep this confidential, but I need somebody to talk to. And now when that employee stays, that coworker knows that that person just got a huge way raise over everybody else. Now, that person will go tell their friend and they'll say this, I can't tell you who it is, but <laughs> before long, everybody in the company has got a story that's even more outrageous than what it is that you probably actually offered this employee in order to keep them. And so, look, if you can't live with the fact that if your payroll, if your whole comp system was published on the cover of whatever magazine would scare you to death and you couldn't justify it, that's when it's time for you to kind of get more precise about your compensation scheme. And that's what motivated Alex, the CEO of Telemedicine Clinic, to get serious about putting together a process because he'd been piecing these individual deals together, just trying to keep people. And it was creating all kinds of drama inside the organization. And I do think if you've got the pay bands that we were talking about earlier and you publish the pay bands and then, you know, people's pay rises are within that, then, you know, that makes people much happier. Yeah. You know, if you don't want to go full transparency, having pay bands is as close as you're going to get. And it takes so much of the heat out of the conversation. Yeah. The pay bands along with here are the five precise things, Gates, you have to achieve KPIs. Same with any sport. 
man, if you're a basketball player and you can get regular triple-double performance at a game, you're going to get much higher compensation. And if you think about it, back to professional sports, all of their comp is transparent and published on the front covers of major sports publications. And if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. Yeah. Vern, that's fab. So uh, scaling up compensation available from all good booksellers. And yeah, and electronics. So you can get it kind of downloaded any place. You doing an audio version? I just did. Uh, I do the pickup lines tomorrow. So it'll be out here in a few weeks. Fantastic. What are you reading at the moment or what have you read so far this year that's caught your attention? Get some book recommendations from you. You know, every year I have to name what are the top five business books for the year. And I think the book that I'm going to name number one is one that Joe Polish has written. Uh We're going to be featuring him at our Scaling Up Summit here in a few weeks. It doesn't come out till November 1st, but it's called What's In It For Them. And it truly is the first real update to how to win friends and influence people. And it is a spectacularly written book. So I've enjoyed Joe Polish. Last year's book, which I still think everyone should read, was Hubert Jolie, the French CEO, who turned around Best Buy's book, The Heart of Business. That book, I highlighted practically every sentence in it, the insights that he provided. By the way, he 10x that stock from $11 to $110. Uh, and so those are a couple of them that just that come to mind right away. Uh, there's, there's a third, by the way, which I... I've gotten a kick out of him. It's called Joyful. And I'm probably going to name it the number one personal book, but it's about how you can change your physical environment, both where you work at home and at the office, and really drive up joy. It really is tied to a lot of the physical design and just having more circles than squares, more rounded edges, more color. In fact, uh, our buddy Ron Lovett, Uh, who we all love in his book, I named number one when it came out, The Outrageous Company. He has a lot of low-income housing units that he's purchased. He's got about a half a billion dollars worth now. And he went in and the doors of Dublin idea that people are familiar with, with all the different colored doors, he went down the hallways and painted his residence doors, all kinds of different bright colors. Every way you want to measure from graffiti to damage done to morale within these units, all improved when he just made the front doors of the units more colorful. So this book, Joyful, I think is insightful. Very good. Vern, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Look forward to seeing you soon. You got it, Dom. See you soon. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.